I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. Today, I'm speaking with Kamal Ravikant, a serial tech entrepreneur and managing partner at Evolve VC, an early stage Silicon Valley venture capital fund. He's also the author of the best-selling books, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It, Rebirth, and Live Your Truth. Kamal has been building companies in Silicon Valley since the late 90s, and his experience and relationships over the years have given him access to some of the very best deal flow in tech. In this episode, Kamal shares his incredible story, marked by both triumphs and setbacks. He opens up about the failed entrepreneurial venture that left him deeply depressed and the silver lining of developing remarkable mental resilience, which later fueled his success. You'll also learn the biggest mistakes angel investors should avoid, the specific attributes that set legendary founders apart from the rest, and what it was like growing up with his brother, Naval Ravikant, who is recognized as one of the most legendary figures in the investing world and the best investment lessons that he's learned from him all along the way. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Kamal has something special for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. Between December 7th and 11th, 2023, you can get the Kindle version of his book, Live Your Truth, for free. In the book, Kamal teaches you that we don't stumble accidentally into an amazing life. It takes a conscious commitment to figuring it out. It begins by looking inside yourself. And when it rises from within, that's when the real magic happens. This guide to self-exploration and personal discovery will help you find your truth and inspire you to live it. 
To get access to this gift, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash 163. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Kamal Ravikant. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I used to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. What's up, Kamal? So good to have you on the show. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about this for a little while, and uh, I'm glad that we're, we're finally connecting and off air. We just had a, a fun conversation about the worlds that we have. So we share a lot of mutual friends and probably more than we even realize. But we were chatting offline here about how fun it would be to have you come here for a month. And, and you've got an incredible network and just get extended time with friends and family in this amazing entrepreneurial and technological epicenter here in Austin. Yeah, it was, it's actually really funny because I was thinking, you know, we were talking, I was like, I probably had more close friends in Austin than anywhere else. And I should literally just pack up the car and the dog and just drive out, get an Airbnb for a month or rent a place for a month or so and just like hang out with everybody. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I think you and I both basically convinced me before the podcast I'm going to do it next year. I love it. 2024. That's the, it's the year of doing some cool stuff. That's for sure. Well, I'm excited for you to be joining us and, and spending some extended time here. Uh, there's probably a ton that we can dive into and potentially even a lot of stuff that we could even partner up on, which would be fun. But at a minimum, uh, just getting a chance to hang. And I love sharing networks. You know, when, when people come into town and there's certain people they want to meet, that, that's my favorite thing is playing professional matchmaker. Uh, someone tells me about their business and and I immediately know, hey, you've got to meet this person. I love doing that. And I'm sure that uh, there'll be some fireworks there. No, that's actually a very valuable thing you offer there, especially when you know you have someone connecting and there's no like ask or anything like that. There's no uh, handout for the VIG kind of thing. Yep. It's, some, it's a term, old term. I think someone taught me once. And it's just like, it's. I love these connections. So looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, talking about the VIG, you live in <laughs> Vegas, and I've got to imagine <laughs> for some people that's a tough place to live, but you don't gamble, which probably is very helpful. You don't party. Yep. So that's probably really helpful. How, how did you end up in Vegas? I mean, look, honestly, like I think it, this was in 2015, 2016. I was like, you know, I'd been in San Francisco, I've been tech for a long time, and I'd built my career there. I was just. But it was the same conversation, and I just realized I wanted to like just go away somewhere very, very different, and uh, actually just have a different conversation. The writer in me is always interested in people's human journeys, and so I decided to make Vegas like a part-time hub, so I could like have a place here and just like travel around, go to places, and have a place to you know. Vegas is a very easy place to live, and I don't live near the Strip. But it's, it's actually when you live here, you go to the Strip only when people visit. Right? That's right, you take yeah. them there. It's a very, very different life. It's a very different life than people imagine. And 
also I like the proximity to California because I can go visit family anytime. I can hop in my car, you know, go see my mom, go see my brother, my, you know, my nephews, my niece, and so forth. So I didn't really like it. And, but to be honest, when I first got here, especially when I did it full time, I hated it. I was living in this condo overlooking Circus Circus. And when you go out at night, it was literally like, oh my God, there's zombies here. There was literally zombies. Like it was, if you can think of the homeless problem and think of a town where that where the homeless people would really get destroyed when they fall, you can you see that in Vegas, and it was really sad. And I was like, "What am I doing here? I should be living by the beach in California." You know, screw this. And then I started training. I called a buddy of mine. I do these things once in a while. I was like, I woke up one morning. I thought, you know what? I want to be John Wick. So I'm going to set up my own personal John Wick training program. So I call a buddy of mine, Tim Larkin. You should know him. Great guy. And uh, he introduced me to this guy named Steve Sanders, who's a former uh, SEAL Team 6 operator, like very highly decorated. The stuff he's done is just legendary, very no-nonsense, very humble. And he ended up taking me on as a one-on-one student in combat shooting. Wow. And I just started training with him full-time, and I fell in love with it. Like, I fell in love with it. It's like I realized what I did was I basically found a modern-day samurai who had come back from the wars and hung up his sword and now took on a student once in a while and trained from that experience. Wow. I mean, and it was like all really transformative for me. And I'd gone through a lot, you know, with some health stuff that I basically died in the hospital and brought back and lost a couple of years of my life, a lot of pain. And I lost a, my, a lot of myself in just being in that severe pain. And this, this training, this way of applying myself at a standard to someone I so respect, who held me to such a high standard, really helped me come to life. Of all the things, I never expected that. And I realized I can't have this kind of life. Like, this is only going to happen in a red state. It's not going to happen in a, in a blue state. Right? Just, we can just go to the desert and run a gun and do all this stuff. And so then I started really just creating a life here that, that I can't have a life that if, I, let's say, if I decide, had decided to move back to, back to California. So, like, I'm living kind of like, you know, the American dream. I'm shooting guns, driving fast cars, you know, like just that kind of life. But I don't, I don't even play like a five-cent slot machine because as I was telling you earlier, I understand enough math to know who's got the advantage. Oh, totally. And I'm a big believer in any money games. I will not be in that money game unless I have an unfair advantage. That's right. Otherwise, then I don't gamble. And right. I love that mindset. And I will like refuse to... Even though people are like, oh, it's fun, whatever. No, no, I want to stick with that mindset. You know, I'm not a club guy, whatever. But you have some of the best restaurants in the world. I can do this this kind of training. So I really, really have enjoyed it. And life is here is actually quite easy. You know, That's it's good. pretty simple, easy life. I like it. And also, I have meetings. I just hop in a plane, go to California, or you know, or anybody. They, everywhere you want to go, there's usually a direct flight from Vegas. Yeah. Anywhere domestically you want to go. There's a direct flight. That's convenient. Yeah, it makes it very convenient to travel. So I've been surprised how much I've enjoyed it here. And what really did it was that training. What started that for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you're cutting down the learning curve really quick. You're Mm. going deep on something. You're you're getting to go from novice to experienced, maybe expert in time, but you're well on that way and you're gonna get there a lot faster. And then just even your mindset that you just had about, hey. I'm not putting money into something unless I have an unfair advantage. I mean, what a great mindset that's really going to serve you long term. I, I absolutely love that. 
Well, thanks. It's actually something I've learned. It's like that's why I don't I don't really do much in the public markets because there's way too way too many quants with way yep. too much computing power in Wall Street with way too much money who are playing that game, and I'm just a small fish in that pond, and they're just smacking me around. They they decide the rules. They decide the prices. They decide all that. Let's just be honest, right? Yeah. You're never going to beat a quant unless you're, you know, a super quant, which most of us are not. And most of these quants aren't even like real people anymore. They're algorithms. They're AI based. I mean, they can operate at the speed of light. They can make decisions. They can make 10 investments before you can click a button to make, you know, one investment and and probably even a hundred times. I mean, just these micro trades. Michael Lewis wrote about it in his book, Flash Boys. Like to me, how do you make money? I mean, as, a, as like long term, that's one thing. You can have your money in the stock market and, and over a long period of time, you can get the appreciation of the US economy and, and whatnot, especially as, as you're using indexes. But to beat something that is as efficient as anything out there, it's just not going to happen. The reason that alternative investments are where I spend you know, the vast majority of my time is because they're inefficient. I got started mm, at mobile yeah, home yeah, parks because yeah. it's That's inefficient. where you make money. That's, that's right. That's the way the money's made. Yeah. That's literally, once a market becomes efficient, the easy money's gone. That's like right. Like the massive multiples are gone. That was the game. That was the whole point of crypto. You know, by the time your grandmother's buying Bitcoin, it, you know, the appreciation, those appreciations are gone. And pe- a lot of people get scared by these, but what they don't realize is like that classic thing, high risk, high reward is applicable, but you can lower your risk. By having the unfair advantage, the unfair advantage can come in knowledge, can come in connections, can come in experience, you know, but you got to have, if you're doing any money game, you got to work on your unfair advantage. Everyone I know who's done really, really well in different spaces of life has, has had their thing. This is their thing. This is their advantage. That's what they're better at, no better at than, you know, majority of people out there. And they just go in. And, yeah. You know, that's the trick. It's a very simple trick. You can't be a generalist and make a fortune. Not today. No. Yeah. Yeah, that that specialization, that niching down, finding that niche market. Yeah, I mean, that's where it's at. And finding where it's underserved, finding where it's inefficient. You got to do a little work. You got to... Or it's even recognizing the trend. You know, I talk about this in my book of finding invisible deals. It's like, what's the trend that's going to happen that hasn't happened yet? How do you get on the, the front side of that trend? How can you be an early adopter of a trend that ends up becoming mainstream and, and no longer just a trend? That's actually where the fortunes are made. At that's least right. in my in my world, you know, in the tech world, uh, Silicon Valley tech world. That's right. Yeah. We're going to dive into this for sure, because I want to hear about your tech life. So backstory. I first learned about you from my dear friend, Hal Elrod, good friend of yours as well. Love Hal. He's the most amazing guy. And what's really fun is we bought a home. We bought a country house next to him. uh, So we're actually neighbors now, which is a blast. But one of the things he told me, he goes, first of all, you've got to read this book. And so I didn't know about your book. I didn't know about you. And he's like, love yourself like your life depends on it. And he goes, and Kamal is... Like he is exactly who you think he is. Like he shows up the way he is in the book. That's the way he is in real life. And he's someone that you need to meet. And so I thought, okay, cool. And so I read your book a number of years ago, Mm -hmm. probably close to when it came out. I'd have to check back to when it actually came out, but I bet it was, you know, not too far after it came out and thought it was incredible. It's just really well done. And I would love to dissect that a little bit. 
but I'd also love to talk about, you know, your life prior to and what led to that book and then your life afterwards and, and where you are today. Sure. I mean, that's pretty encompassing. So I'll try to make it brief and, and hopefully there's some lessons in there, like practical lessons from people. I've had like a very kind of like crazy, there's no simple path. You know, I was in the U.S. Army. I was an infantry soldier, kind of like backpacked around the world in my 20s with no money, living in Europe on $3 a day, like sleeping in wheat fields and ruined castle, You're climbing ruined castles, sleeping in them and churches where whoever would take me in. You know, like my literally my budget, I remember, uh, was about $3 a day. That would get me enough, like a piece of bread, big piece of bread, cheese, some apples, and maybe possibly sometimes a bottle of wine. And that's, you know, like done stuff like that. And then I got into writing and I fell in love with the craft of writing and I knew I had stories to tell. But I also learned that I, I was a very shitty writer, like most people who start out are, and how, like, like what it takes. And Hemingway was the model for me and just obsessively studied him for like over a decade and then wrote, rewrote, taking, you know, classes, you know, going to Stanford, doing all this like classes, workshops, blah, 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 until like every place I went, I was the best writer there. Cause I was, cause I was writing and sending stuff to publishers and collecting rejection letters. And I was always like, you know what? This is too important to me. One day they're going to chase me. And it took time, but I got there, but and it was That's a very, cool. very good. It's a very good feeling. But man, when you get those rejection letters, you go through those, you know, uh, that basically you get depressed. You know, it's like, it's interesting being an artist, like creating art and depending on other people's opinions of your art to uh, looking back. I wish I hadn't done that. I just would have taken this, the, the craft opinion of where I could be better, but not their uh, judgment because all the great artists, you know, like all the great writers, so many of them, if you read their rejection letters, they're so comical. Right. Right. But the one benefit that did give me was it just gave me a stronger, stronger resolve to be a better and better and better writer. So no, no one would ever question my quality of writing. They could maybe question the story. They say, oh, this is not the right story for me. But they will never say, like, wow, like, no, you know, your number of writing needs to improve. Like the minority of people, that's not the mindset. The mindset, like if you get beat down, most people just give up. They cave in and they say, you're right. So your mindset that you're a small percentage that says, okay, this just fuels me even more and forces me to get better at my craft. And at some point you're going to chase me down like Penguin Random House did. But that is not a common mindset. That is an atypical, uncommon mindset. Yeah, it was HarperCollins actually. And I love them. They're a great publisher, uh, Harper One. Funny enough, the Harper One also published one of my favorite books of all times, uh, The Alchemist. Love that. And it book. was great to know that one of my all-time favorite books was published by my publisher, right? Yeah. But you know what it was? It was I look back at that young guy who was consistently like when I was working in tech, but at night was like deconstructing Hemingway, and the weekends was taking classes and writing. Everyone's out partying. He's working on. They're like, Kamal's writing again. Kamal's writing. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> like, why are you wasting your time and all of that? But there was something, I think it was because I knew I had stories to tell. And then I had, I owed it to the stories to tell them the best way I could. Mm. So it wasn't like, I haven't had that attitude about everything. You know, I will drop things on a dime. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, I haven't been that disciplined and everything. But it's like, when you find your thing, that's yeah. when you know. Like you yep. will not quit. It's like, it's your thing. Like you were, you'll do it till the day you die. So I think that's what it was. And we all have our things, you know, like, so that was my thing. And I'm very lucky that I found it. And I'm very lucky that I kept at it. And like, I'm glad I got those rejection letters because it made me go out and become such a better writer. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the re- rejections do do that. You work your way up the belts. You know, that's kind of like what it was. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very grateful for that. And for those that don't know, why did you want to write this book? And what's the general thesis of the book from your perspective? You know, you as the author. Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I never set out to write a self-help book. I'm not a self-help person. Like, I appreciate it, but I'm not the self-help guy. I'm very practical. I'm very, like, no, like, my background is in building startups, right? So I moved to Silicon Valley late 90s, got my dot-com boom, find another passion because I like a lot of things. I like to do a lot of things. And when you're early stage startup or you're starting one, you're literally doing everything. So you're never bored. And it's always yep. challenge. It's nothing but a series of challenges you're always solving. You're getting your ass kicked. You're getting up. You're solving. You're getting asked. You get up. You're solving. That's all it is. Like to go from like zero to ten thousand revenue is one thing, right? The ten, then from ten thousand to a hundred thousand thing is another series of challenges. We're getting asked if a hundred thousand a million is a whole different series of challenges. A million, ten million, ten million, a hundred million, hundred million, billion, whatever. You know, like the true entrepreneurs is the people don't realize it's not like a, a linear thing. It's like right. a whole different level of challenges you're stepping up to. And I mean, it's a great way to grow. It's a great way to also get your ass beat and feel shitty by yourself at times too. But that's part of growth. For sure. And people who are not entrepreneurs or haven't built a big business may not realize it. It might sound like, well, once you figure it out, you're good, right? No, because in business, the exact protocol, the exact model, the exact SOPs that got you to one level is going to actually make you fail at the next level. So the next level of scale, the thing that got you there is the thing that's going to hold you back from the next level. It's such a crazy phenomenon, but you're always retooling. You're retooling your own skills, but you have to retool the business and you have to retool who's in the business with you. You know, I just realized something. It's uh, as an analogy, and I don't have kids, but from having watched friends of mine and family members of kids, it's like, it's the same as having kids. The strategies used for a two-year-old is not the strategy you're going to use for when that two-year-old is 15 years old. That's right. They're challenging you nonstop. You guys have to step up and grow. Entrepreneurship is that as well. Yes. And it's, it's a great journey. I highly recommend it. You know, it's what makes America special. Yeah. It really is. The American dream is the dream of entrepreneurship. You can come here. When you make it, I mean, you, you have immigrants, people who came here. Look at Larry Sergey. You know, some of the richest guys in the world, they, they control so the information of the world right? Yep. Immigrants. And then just like if you're in Europe, one of the reasons why like like VC, venture capital in Europe is not so advanced, at least in tech, is that certain countries, if you fail, you're punished. You're never going to raise money again. Here yep. in tech and like in Silicon Valley, if you fail, if you did it right, if you're doing the right thing, so you were, you were a good entrepreneur, we will come back and back you right away. We're like, we want to profit from your lessons. That's right. You know, like we want to back you. And America is very unique in that you don't get fit, you don't get punished by the system. When I say the system, I don't mean the government. I mean like the capitalist society system yeah. for failing. You get punished for not trying. That's right. I mean, like I love backing repeat entrepreneurs. I don't care what happened in the past. You know, like how how they go because eventually they hit it. Yeah, hundred percent. That's something that makes our country very very special. I don't think a lot of people uh, pay enough attention to, and like we really need to create more entrepreneurship-friendly regulations rather than, rather than the other way. Oh, 100%. You're uh, suffocating the American dream. You're suffocating yes. what, what's made this country so successful, so unique, and it's very short history. 
in, yeah. uh, on this, in the world, right? Well, and even to your point of immigrant founders, there's a fund called One Way Ventures that I absolutely love. Semyon Dukak runs it, who's a brilliant guy from MIT. If you saw the movie 21, mm-hmm. like this is one of the guys in those movies and behind some of the, the Vegas, just being able to take Vegas for millions, right? And so his whole thesis is immigrant founders and investing in them as a niche asset class. So I love that. And I have found that, I mean, there's just a world of immigrant founders. I, I feel like for many of us that have been born, you know, born here in the US, um, don't know what it's like to live true third world. Like sometimes we'll go vacation and we'll go vacation to the nice areas, but people that actually live in tougher economic times, tougher seasons, tougher places geographically, when they have the opportunity to come here and to start companies or even from their home country, it's incredible to see the work ethic that is displayed and, and the success that these immigrant founders are having. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting thesis. That is a very interesting thesis. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. I wonder how that fund does. Okay, but that's uh, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> no, but I just I, I'm just like a big fan of the American uh, the American dream. I think it's such a such a unique experiment in human history, and it's changed the world. Yeah. It's transformed the world in such a short period of time. If we look at you know just how long we've been around, um, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. So so I was doing you know startups, moved out Silicon Valley startups, and then um, building companies. You know, start you know being part of companies, building companies. And then um, one company I built that I founded, and you know I made the mistake of I put all my money I'd saved over the previous decade into it, self funded it, and I was doing great. Oh, no. I finally took some money, and the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything. Oh. And now that I lose everything, I was literally making like paying off like some of my employees with my credit card, and like I was, I was like, but I still lost everything. I'm like literally living off credit cards, oh. and it was not a fun time. And, you know, also this was like, the problem was a lot of my ego was tied up in that. My sense, my, my self-worth, everything was tied up in that. I'd be working at it nonstop for three and a half years. I think the last half year I started taking Sundays off. You know, it was just, it was an obsession. I had to, there's a lot of ego tied into it. I had to pull it off. Some of this, I felt like I had to prove myself to my peers or whatever, have a level of success that I knew, you know, that they had and so forth. And that massive failure, I kind of collapsed with it like mentally, emotionally, physically. And I just remember I was really down. Um, and one night I was just, I was sick. I was down. I was just miserable. And I was just like, I cannot stay in this head. I cannot stay anywhere. I was just sick of my own head. I was sick of being stuck in my damn own head. And the only solution is, well, you go jump off the Bay Bridge. That's how you get out of your head. Or you, or you just get out or you just change everything. And I remember that night, I, um, I was so sick of it. I walked to my desk in my bedroom and I had a journal. I just sat down in my journal and I wrote a vow to myself. And I'm a very big believer in the power of making a power of personal commitment. If you want to build confidence in yourself, make commitments to yourself and keep them. You will, you will walk differently. You will be a different person internally which in turn have people treat you differently. Yes. Especially, and you know, small to big. And then when you make a vow, you know, that's what they call it, a marriage vow, right? It's, it's pretty serious, yes. right? So I believe like if you make a vow to yourself, that's about as serious as it gets because it's between you and life and God or whatever you believe in, right? Yeah. And I sat down and I wrote a vow to myself, but I was going to write a vow that I was going to get out of it. I was going to be better. 
But what came out of the moment, uh, what came from deep within me was a vow, and it's much more poetic and better. It's, I have it in the book. It came out basically, but in a nutshell, that I was going to love myself. And and I sat back, and I had written it so hard. I think I wrote almost, a, I like carved into the wood desk, you know, like you can see like lines in the desk. Like it came mm. from like a deep, like deep, powerful place, but also like desperation. And I remember sitting back thinking, what did I just write? Like, I know nothing about love myself. I was not the love yourself guy, you know, or like, and for a guy who went out and, and later on wrote a book about it, I didn't. I didn't go read any books about it because I think I'm, my problem with a lot of modern self-help is that it's very pedantic. It's very fluffy. It's not practical. I come from a world of practical, what works. You know, your entrepreneur, you building things, write me a speck of what works. You know, give me a, it's got to be what works. It can't be like, oh, you should love yourself. This is how you feel good, blah, blah, blah. No, give me the step by step by step. That's all I care about. So having no guidebook on that, and honestly, I didn't look, but from what I'd seen before, what I read before, there was no guidebook. I then just sat around and tried to figure it out myself. And, you know, I was broke. I had no job. My company was dead. You know, I had some time in my hands. I was feeling really shitty. And so I just started like working on the one thing I could, which was in, in my head. That is the one thing I could work on. I just started running like, like um, loops in my head, start thinking things, feeling things, making myself thinking things, making myself feel things, looking myself in the mirror and doing things. And what the only thing was, I was because I made that vow, I had to keep it. Otherwise, I was literally breaking my own vow to myself, which I was big, breaking the most sacred act to myself. Right. And so I couldn't lie to myself about that. So I did. And I just kept at it and I noticed that I did certain things and my mind got better. And so I went further down a rabbit hole. And if it didn't get better down there, I threw it out. I didn't care. It was only like a, it was a clinical trial of a sample size of one. And to me, the, the only sample size that matters is you. Mm. Does it work for you? That's the only thing right. that matters when you work on in the inner That's stuff so in a game, right? What this ended up being was like a, like a process that came up with it, just purely internal process. And it was very simple, very easy. And it's, you know, there was no bubble baths, no like chanting, no, no nothing, right? Like it was just very, just inner work. And I, I, shift, I shifted everything in my mind. And my mind became like a really beautiful place to be. And it was all from, from a place of loving myself, making myself feel it, experience it, you know. And, and, and then I remember a co-founder of that company who had burnt out and reached out to me and like I replaced him, you know, I'd continue and I was the only one who, well, I burnt out, but I continued on, right? Because I was the one funding it. And uh, he reached out to me. He was going through a really hard time. I was like, oh, dude, don't worry. I figured it out. So I quickly wrote up a thing for him, like exactly what I'd done. I sent it to him. He comes back in a week or two. He's like, oh my God, I've been doing it. I feel like I'm starting to feel really good about myself. Like life is, it was the interesting thing I noticed. It's like, when my insight changed, life started to shift around mm. me to, to, to no effort of my own. But I was like, okay, this is interesting. Like, this is like, I, I started using the word magic to describe it because I felt like life was becoming magical where things would just work. That's the only way I can describe it. And however you believe the whole show is, that's up to you. Like, I have my own theories on it. But in the end, like I said, I just care about what works, mm. right? And so he reported that back. And then so I shared it with a few other people. They reported that back. And so I got basically got convinced to write it down. And I was terrified of writing this out because I was like, look, I'm going to be such a laughing stock. And you know, if I write it down and publish it, 
and I put it out there because like, here I am, I failed in Silicon Valley. Like no one's ever going to invest in me, but I'm okay now because I learned to love myself. You know, like, I mean, this is like way back. This is, a, we're talking like I wrote, this is the original version I wrote in like 2011, right? Like people weren't talking about this stuff, right? right? And, but I got convinced to do it. And what finally made me do is because I gave my word to a friend of mine, James Altucher, that I would do it. If he liked it, I would write it. If he liked it, I would, pu- I would publish it, self-publish it. And he liked it. So I had to keep my commitment to him. I did this purely from because of commitments I made. If I hadn't made those commitments, that book would never exist, mm. honestly. In fact, the practice, the, what I came up with would never exist. That is the power of commitments. No kidding. It really is. They go, they take you way beyond, way beyond what you committed about. Yep. But you want to know what that, what that road is, what that path is um, until you're on it. Yep. And maybe right? having friends being insistent upon you doing it or swearing by the effects that it had. Well, even then, I still want to publish this. I, dude, I was really scared yeah. I was going to be a laughing stock in Silicon Valley, right? Uh, but what it was was the commitment I made. Okay. And so I, so I wrote it. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? For a decade, I've been working to teach myself the craft of fiction writing. I was going to write the Great American Novel. I was going to be like the next Hemingway, you know? I was, but what that done was it had taught me how to write simple and true. And then my experience of, of running, building companies and doing startups was how to be very practical. And so I wrote that book with the craft of writing I already knew. So anyone can read it and absorb it. And I could write, la- I could do layers within layers within layers. So the stuff would just come in your subconscious. I knew how to do that, you know, but I was going to do that in fiction, right? But so I did that in a book. But yet the practical side of me literally wrote like, okay, this is what the whole thing is. Like, just follow this, do this in your mind. And here you go. And I self-published on Amazon. I think it was 2011, 2012, 2011, I think. And then I just hid. I was terrified I was going to be a laughing stock. I thought, I'm, you know, but I just was like, okay, I'm going to buy eight copies, you know, give them out to friends. Whenever someone needs help, I'll give them that. And that, so I don't have to keep explaining the damn thing over and over again, <laughs> right? And within a month, that thing went viral. People were like, it was all over Facebook. That, you know, Facebook was really big, like big then, like a, in the sense that it was used a lot more by everyone you knew. It went everywhere on Facebook. People were posting it, whatever, because it was written from a non-self-help guy in a very practical way who was sharing of himself, right? And it just, it just hit a nerve. Like, it took off. Within a month, it was the number one self-help book on Amazon. Now, I don't mean like how people say, you know, Amazon best. I mean, it's like books, self-help, number one. Wow. Right? And it's like no marketing, no nothing, right? And we talked about this. I'm not a marketer, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tech guy. I'm a writer. And it kind of put me on the map as a writer. So all those rejection letters have gone into the years and now just doing this one thing that I put out to help at worst, right? And to keep a commitment. All of a sudden, I was getting emails. Because I didn't expect to sell any copies, Right, I put my email in there. I'm like, "Hey, if anyone reads it, email me." You know, and you know what? <laughs> I got flooded with emails, flooded, and it was like, like this changed my life, this saved my life, and blah blah blah. These questions, and and like, it was incredible. And that book went on to like just sell incredibly well for years and years. So that's when the publishers and agents started chasing me and wanting to, wanting to like just fat it up and put it out there. And, but the book for me was so true and special that I always turned them down. Like, no, there's something, there's something like lightning in a bottle of credit here. I will not sell it to you just for, for money. Cause honestly, self-publishing, you make more than you do actually with traditional publishing. Right. That's right. So it started paying my bills. It helped me actually build back up mm. that little book. So I paid my rent in San Francisco and my, and, 
San Francisco was not a cheap place to live and like paid my living expenses. So then I could actually rather have to go out and get a J-O-B. Nice. I sat down, I thought, what do I want to do? And then I built my next career, which just turned out to be fantastic. That allowed me, that gave me the space to have pay off my, pay my bills. You know, never declared bankruptcy, I paid everything off, personal debts off or whatever. But that book, and again, the power of commitment, look what it did for me and allowed me to do my next career, which said do venture capital, which I've turned out to be very, you know, I've done, I'm doing very well in it and I very much enjoy it. But that, again, those series of commitments, I never would have thought like doing the vow to loving myself would lead to that career because the VCs are like, I never thought I'd be a VC. I didn't think I had the skill set. It turns out, actually, if you're an entrepreneur, those are the better VCs in my book because you know what it's like to be in the trenches. Those are the ones I respect. Yeah. So this book, for like so long, did so well. And then eventually, with all those emails, I mean, God knows how many emails I got. So many from all this. I come from all over the world. They're like, look, can you publish this language, that language? I'm trying to translate from my mom, you know, like all this. stuff. a lot of those. Okay, I want my mom to read it, but she only speaks this language. And I started to notice there were a lot of questions in there. And I realized because the original version, I'd done it short and to the point, but I had left a lot out, a lot of personal stuff out that I knew. I was actually kind of scared of sharing. But in this coaching, I was like, shit, if I had just shared all that, very honestly, it would answer all these questions. So then I sat down to write, rewrite it. And I kept the original version as part one. But then I wrote down, I'm going to write the definitive manual from loving yourself, including like when someone's done, it'll have seeped into them and they'll know exactly how to do it, how to apply it. I'd spent a year working on it. Oh, that's great. Uh, like a year, just obsessed, writing, rewriting, and did the expanded version. Harper One bought it and they were very, very wonderful about it. And then it's gone on. Now it's now I don't have to worry about those emails about, I want to translate for my mom because it's out in like all these different languages all over the world. And I get the same email. Now I don't get, I don't get questions anymore because I, I literally made sure every question I've ever gotten, I didn't answer as a Q&A, but I made sure that it was answered. Like there was no unresolved points. Like this was it. And it's been an amazing journey, man. And you know, here's an f- interesting thing. Here's a very interesting lesson. I was so scared of sharing on myself with that book because I've been, a, in my mind, I'd been a failure, right? And I was so scared. And you would be amazed the caliber of people who come up to me at parties or events and told me that book helped them. I'm talking about Fortune 50 CEOs. Like people like I'm in a, I'm in a room and they're surrounded. We're talking about some of the biggest people in the industry. Yep. Right. They'd be surrounded. Like, and this time around, I'm just like, usually if I'm in a room and someone's surrounded by people, I go the other way. I am not that guy. <laughs> I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm fine on my own. Thank you. And I've had, you know, come up to me and say, oh, you're a Kamal Robinson. Yes. You wrote that book. Because sometimes I get, oh, you're Naval's brother. I forget that in tackle. I'm like, yeah, I am, you know. And then, but you wrote that book. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, that book really helped me last year. And I know, I mean, this is a, because you have a very, very prominent company. I was like, wow. Like, I mean, from that to like, kids and grandmothers all over the world just telling me the same thing. And it's, it's so rewarding. Yes. And if you think about like all those years when I was writing and working the craft of writing, you know, it's like anything when you're working in obscurity, all you have is a dream, right? And then eventually through life 
making it happen in, in ways you didn't expect. I didn't expect to write a self-help book. I really didn't, man. <laughs> like, and, but it was, it was the story I had to tell. Life gave me that story, right? And it's, it's gone on to like, I've had people come and join, you know, at my VC fund, become LPs because they're like, look, I read your book. I know the man you are. I want to invest with a man like you. Oh, that's like, so never cool. would bet that never would have imagined that. So that that is the power of sharing of ourselves. Yeah, our real self. You know, like the world is hungry for real that. vulnerability yeah. and authenticity. Yes. Yeah, like the world is you know full of too many people showing off rented Lambos and all that stuff. You know, it's just like no, like uh, it just being real, just being you know, just being human. Yeah. And sharing your lessons. You know, one thing I'm not a fan of is just sharing your dirty laundry. Like, we all have a dirty laundry. We all have our issues, right? That, that, that helps no one. Share the solution. Share what you did that made you mm. better overcome it. That's good. Because they're all human things, especially the mind. What I learned is, and really rewriting the book and like writing the extended version, I was like, this isn't just about loving yourself. This is all about the mind. You know, we're born, we live, and we die the entire time we're in our mind. Right. Like that's all the whole thing is in our mind. Yeah. And we spend so much of our time, you know, we'll work on fitness. We'll get the right cold mattress that makes the wet temperature better. You know, we'll get the right this, that. How much time do we spend working on our mind? A thing that runs the entire show. That's right. hundred percent. And that creates our misery. I mean, look, we can have situations which can make us miserable. Let's be honest. I've been through some and like they're horrific. They were horrific and I was miserable, but then you're, it's your choice. What do I do with this? And you work on your mind. Yeah, That is the only choice we have, really. And it's the most liberating thing, too. And here's the funny thing. The better your inside gets, the better your outside gets. Yeah. It's just, I have literally come to believe in that. It's like the law of gravity, and that's the same thing. Better your inside, the better your outside. 100%. Yeah, without a doubt. And I'd love to talk about, uh, so, you know, this book, I feel like there, there's a real healing aspect of writing this book. You're helping others. There's a healing aspect to yourself too, but it's also healing to know that you're having impact on other people. And, and that creates a lot of motivation in itself, but you did a total career change, right? So you pivoted from being an entrepreneur to being an investor. Mm-hmm. And I know that you said, you think that there are a lot of entrepreneurs that end up being good VCs. I would say as a general rule, my experience is most people who are entrepreneurs don't do well at investing. There's a small percentage that can do well over at the VC because they were they get that game, they did that game, and so they can identify things quickly that other people can't. So I think it's niche, right? But most people, because it's two different skill sets. Yeah. But if you're investing in early stage and you did early stage, you've got a playbook that other people don't have, right? But if you delve into the rest of alternative investments, I think it's a different skill set. And I love that you were able to cross that bridge in a, a very successful way. Well, like I said, in the same field, I didn't go to real estate. I didn't go to like investing in things I don't know. Investing in the world I was in, right? Yep. But there is actually, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm really glad that there is a caveat. A lot of entrepreneurs, when they start angel investing, are awful investors. Yes. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you the secret. And I realized quickly what the secret was is why they're awful investors versus how do you become a great investor if you're a former entrepreneur? If you're an entrepreneur, you're fundamentally a problem solver. Yes. That if you've been that, you that's what you've done, right? So you can look at a problem. Someone comes to you with a pitch and they have this thing, I'm going to do this. And you could think of, oh yeah, 
So this is what I would do. This is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. This is, and, and I can go. And you, so you see the possibility and you invest in that. Wrong. That's where you're going to lose money. Because here's the thing. You're not the one in the trenches. You're not That's the right. one who's going to be solving that problem. So what That's you right. got to do is you got to ask yourself, that person pitching me, can that person yeah. pull it off? When you change that mindset, that's when you make money in investing. And that's yeah. the mistake most entrepreneurs make when they start angel investing. They look at it as a problem from that mindset of how they could solve it. My brother yeah. actually gave me some great advice. My brother's one of the most successful investors in, in Silicon Valley and one of those best founders of Silicon Valley. He said, like, when he first started investing, before he started investing, he would just meet with entrepreneurs and talk to them about their pitches just to help, right? But I don't think he said he wrote a single check until he had done at least like a thousand. Think about it. Wow. By a thousand and over time, and he was being helpful. It wasn't taking their time, right? He was being helpful, but it was learning. He had enough experience and even data, like over, you know, it takes time to see how did this, the one that he thought would do well, did they end up doing well or no? Or why? He starts to see mm. the patterns. And before he wrote his first check. That's so good. Right. And so that's really great advice. And so, like, I used to do that. I used to just meet with a lot of entrepreneurs, just try to help. Right. But like also seeing like, okay, like looking back, where did I go? What were my thoughts? You know, like so forth. And that was actually really, really valuable. And I still love doing that because you're always learning. There's no like, oh, I figured it out because it's a human, it's human beings. It's not tech. It's human beings. You're investing in. I never look at a spreadsheet. I do early stage. I do not look at like uh, business plans. Business plans are for MBA presentations. You know, if you're early stage investor looking at business plan, you're doing it wrong. You're basically looking at the what the product is gonna be and can these team pull it off? Can they sell? Can they build it? Can they sell? Can they build it? Can they sell? That's it. Yep. Does the concept work? And is the jockey gonna be able to do it, right? And also, do you think this person can go from what stage one to stage two to stage three? Or can they or the most important thing actually, can they uh, motivate really people better than them to join them? You got that? It's a no-brainer. You invest in them all day long. Like some of my best investments, all my best investments were in the founder, but also knowing like, okay, this guy's going to build. This is a great problem to solve. This is a lucrative problem to solve. Like this is needed. One. Two, this entrepreneur, this is his passion. Like this is what he's going to do no matter what. This is not a fair weather entrepreneur. Run away from those because those are like if the markets go down or the, the, that industry goes down, they jump ship. You want the one, even if there was no more customers left, would still be building it because they so care. Yeah. Right? 100%. So the market, the founder, but then also, do they have the passion and the smarts to recruit amazing people? If they do, you have basically the recipe for success. Yeah. There are outliers, right? Because what happened with my company is like Yahoo woke up one day and realized I was taking away a chunk of their business and they contacted all the people at, you know, contracts with it and said, choose us or them, this little startup and boom, gone. Right? So yep. those things happen. But Barring that, if you're going to bet on success, that's it. Like great founder can build a team, the value of the product. That's right. And the right team can pivot. If the product's not working, if the product market fit changes, if there's some competitor that you just can't get ahead, in many cases, the right team can then shift what the business is into a more successful model or maybe a totally different vertical. Yeah. And if you get lucky sometimes, you know, you get into like, even the market is hungry for it. And then just like the thing becomes like, you know, what they call unicorns or whatever, but it's never like an easy thing. You talk to any of the founders, it's never easy. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's the trick in angel investing and venture investing. If you're an entrepreneur, don't look at it as a problem, like how you would solve it. You're not in the trenches. Even if you're an advisor, advisors don't build companies. 
Yeah. It's literally the founders and the team. That's it. Yep. In fact, the founders. Yeah. hundred percent. They set the stage, they set the culture, they set everything. And in fact, uh, Mike Maples is an amazing venture investor in Silicon Valley. It was in like Facebook, Google, all those, right? Really good man. Texan, actually. Lives in California, but Texan, very gentlemanly. He told me once that the best companies he's ever invested in, he's seen over time, is where the founder stays at the helm. He says, so he looks at it, is this founder going to stay with this for like 10, can, and that kind of thing. I mean... You're obviously guessing, but you look back and he's like, like, look at Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Look at Sergey and Brin. You know, like they never let go. Look at Zuck at Facebook. You know, look at like Elon and Tesla. Like, I mean, this is their ship. They're not like handing it over to a professional management team. If you hand over a professional management team, that just becomes a B company. Yeah. Their professional management team is just to keep the status quo, maybe slowly go X percent a year. That's but right. The great, the game changing companies are the ones where the founders are just gonna stay at it this is their lifelong thing yeah 100 percent. and it's fun I, I tell people all the time that i think your brother naval is one of the greatest investors if not the single greatest angel investor of our time and the experts all say that you really need to be in at least a hundred angel investments to have the probability to have one become an outlier and outperform and naval says this all the time and so in this space and in what you do in VC. His record is way better than that. Oh, his is incredible. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. no one can do what your brother did. I mean, it's like, it's such a small percentage. You know what it is? I'll tell you, like, look, I'll be honest. He's my brother, right? I've known him all his life. I'm the older brother. So I can say that. I've known him all his life. I love it. He is probably the most brilliant human being I've ever met. And I've met some very brilliant human beings. He and I are both very, like, values-driven. Like, he sticks to his values. And over time, it's your reputation, right? You help enough people over time and you take care of them and you get, you're that person. Yep. So who do you think entrepreneurs are going to come to when they're raising money? That's right. If you're intelligent and you're so helpful and you never, you don't screw entrepreneurs and you're like, you know, like, because a lot of VCs do. That's right. And they used to until like my brother built AngelList, which shifted a lot of power away from actually VCs to angels, you know, yep. and entrepreneurs. I mean, it was standard for to be screwed over by VCs because you would go raise money from a VC. If you were lucky, you'd go to those big offices in Sand Hill Road and sit in those big boardroom meetings with these guys who have never, you know, like VC is not hard work. It's meetings. I'm, building a company is hard work. I've taken flack for saying that, but I'm very, I will say that all day long. I've done both meetings versus like your servers are melting, your customers are calling and screaming at you, your employees, like, and, you go there, and then if you get a term sheet, it's they get you a lawyer, law firm. The law firm is the one who wrote their term sheet. Yep. And then they have all these clauses they would write in there that literally they could screw the founders and then happen off it. That was yep. just the game, right? He changed that by building AngelList. That's right. He was on a mission, right? And so the one thing is, he's very values-driven. And if someone has given that much to the community, by creating something that wasn't a public service, but he did it in such a way that like it never cost entrepreneurs. You know, it gave them the power. That's right. And who do you think they're going to go to when they want to want an investment, right? And he is sharp. One thing I've seen about him: if anyone people follow him on Twitter or actually follow him on AirChat, that's where he's now. That's his latest thing, latest project. Just you can download in the app stores. If you want to talk to him, you can literally go there and talk to him. Oh, that's cool. Like he's always seen the future ahead of anyone. Like it's like it used to annoy me. 
at some point, you know, I I'm like, geez, man, can you be wrong? Can you be wrong once? But now I'm like, you know, I got to appreciate it. Like, I mean, yeah. it's really impressive. Yeah. Like you're an investor in his fund, right? Yeah. 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 So, you're helping his fund. Yeah. 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 I love Ravikant Capital because it's the deals that I am never going to recognize. It's, it's terms that I wouldn't get. It's that foresight and that recognition of trends that I'm not going to see in a way that he does. So I love hitching my wagon to people that are way smarter and have way more access. I mean, that's one of the big things I talk about. You add enough value to people, you get access that you otherwise wouldn't get. And most people, when you ask them about deals that they do, they're like, oh, I got plenty of deals. I got tons of deals. I've got, you know, (laughs) but that's not it. You don't want the investments you can get in. You want the investments that you can't get in. (laughs) And that only comes with relationships. Yeah, relationships, trust, access, yeah, and also knowing deal structures, being able to get the right deals. That's right. I mean, my brother and I, I mean, and honestly, he helped me set up the my first venture fund. I was basically paying off my credit card debts. You know, I was, the book was selling and it was bringing some money in. And we were driving back from visiting our mom once. And I was like, we're talking about what I'm doing next. And I was like, look, man, I'm too burnt out to go starting the company. And there's no problem. I want to solve that badly. That... I want to go start a company to do it. I'll probably just go become VP of something somewhere. You know, I had the experience like, go, you know, then they'll clock in, do the VP of something. And well, Naval's against that, which right? was like the least exciting <laughs> option, but it was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta like make some money, right? I gotta, I gotta make some, start make some good money. And he was like, look, you've been helping friends of yours get into deals in, in the Valley, like friends actually from Austin. I was telling them getting a deal. And then in the Bay Area, for, getting deals in the Valley through him, right? And through my network, because I've been in the Valley since the late 90s. And the people who were starting off there are now running the show, right? So he's like, you've been helping people get into deals, your friends get into deals. And then you also helped a bunch of entrepreneurs, you know, like you just really like doing it. He's like, basically, you're a VC without the carry. He's like, why don't you formalize it and tell your friends, I'll get you a deal if we get to put the money in this fund. And then you help the entrepreneurs, but you also, and the answer, you got to fund them. And then the upside, you've never gotten the upside from the entrepreneurs you've helped. You got the upside, a piece of the upside. And it's a win-win. Yep. I was like, oh, when you put it that way. <laughs> and so I set out to do it and he helped, like he put in touch with his lawyer. He really, if so, I was able to do it much cheaper than a regular fund is. And that was off to the races. And he helped me with investments and taught me and we co-invest a lot together. And I'm very grateful for it. Credit, I will always give him the credit. Never put your ego in the way of making money. (laughs) Or or learning and being good at what you do, right? So the one thing is like, I really like now is uh, in investing, I can help entrepreneurs in a different way. And and I'm always very available to them. And I'm, you know, because I'm also a former founder. And it makes me, the conversations we have are always very different than the pitches yes. they're used to. And I'm like, do me a favor, man, don't pitch me. Like, I just, just talk to me. Tell me what you're building. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you like, what wakes you up in the morning. What are you like nightmares about this? Like, tell me that. That's what I want to know. Yeah. Because in the end, I'm investing in the person. And investing really is, is like you said, on the jockey. And the best investments are. And I love this. I'll always be doing this. I mean, you get to be part of the future. I'm getting to invest in really smart people building, you know, like building the future, like stuff that I never would have any access to otherwise. And you stay, your brain stays young. You have to be sharp. I always have to be on top of what's the next thing coming and learn it and be good at it. Just so because I'm deploying people's capital into it. That's right. It's a great gig. I love it. Oh, it's so fun. What's awesome is I built my own fund. I'm not responsible to anyone. 
I'm not VP of biz anything anywhere. <laughs> you know, like it's just like on my terms. Yep. And pretty much all my LPs are entrepreneurs because they know how I operate. And those are the best ones. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a great gig when you have a passion for it. I mean, I love investing. It's fun. It's, you know, I took a year off and traveled the world with my family. And I kind of journaled trying to figure out what are my common patterns. And one of them is that I love to learn. Another one is the more I learn, the more I want to teach other people mm. what I've learned. Mm. And then another one is that I love coaching and teaching people how to create financial freedom and how to build wealth. And then the fourth one is I just love investing. I love deals. Like I love the, the art of a good deal. I love the negotiation of improving the deal terms. And so these are all the things that I did when it was totally disconnected from money. Right, like this is what I did when I. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah, if you beautiful. can find that and then monetize it. Yeah, you got your thing. That's, That's the secret. Right. If you really, what you would be doing, like you just so enjoyed, you could figure out how to monetize. Those are the people who are successful and the happiest. Mm. Well, and that's where Lifestyle Investor actually was born from. Was that year of really figuring out what was next? Because I didn't know what, what I was. I had no clue what I was going to do. I was searching. I was eager to figure out what's next. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the game game's always evolving. You think you've figured out like B2C, all of a sudden this thing called crypto comes into play. You know, next thing you're trying to figure out, decentralize this, decentralize that. You think you started to figure that out, AI shows up. You're figuring that out, which like, then what's next? You know, it's like, you're, you're never bored. Yeah. You know, in fact, I tell people now, like if you're, let's say if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 20s right now and you're thinking like, how can I be wealthy in five years? Like, look at the thing that is going to change everything. Look at like, like, let's say if you're in the late nineties, just, I would have said, you know, if I knew what you knew, knew now, I would have just said, go build websites, you know, start building websites. You will get into it. People were charging like six figures for our HTML, CSS website back then. Right. Wow. And getting it easily. Right. Remember those days? Yeah. And, and so like all the stuff we take for granted, but a new technology comes out. The people who can even just do the basic implementation of it for any company, for people who that's not their strong suit, can charge, can name their price. That's right. Now, you want to do, say, you want to be rich within within five years and be on top of the game, get into AI. That's right. Start, just go deep into it, figure it out, start selling those services to companies, to businesses, because when you're you don't have time to figure that stuff out. You hire, you hire people right. who are experts at it, and you can name your price. And because being in it, the end game will show the path will come to you, will show you, uh, will basically materialize in front of you when you're in it. You may start out building websites, but two years later, you'll have had the connections and done this and that. Next thing you do, you start a SaaS company that's worth a billion dollars. That's right. right. That's how this all happens. You know, like I'm always wary of the entrepreneurs who pitch me. I've never, honestly, I never invested in them, to tell you the truth. It was like, I'm creating the next multi billion dollar company. I'm like, I wish you the best of luck. Bye. <laughs> the ones, and seriously, they, and I've never seen them pull it off. I mean, if you want to say that, yes, here's my money, please, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you've done it before, that's but I've right. met too many people who I was like, oh, I'm creating the next billion, this billion, that. No, you have no idea what it takes. You have no idea of the lashes on your back you're going to have. You have no idea the sacrifices. You just to go from zero to a billion. It's, you know, the level of even just the luck it takes on top of everything, right? Uh, but the person who comes to you say, oh, this is a problem I want to solve. And it's got a market. And it's made right now. This, it's got these small bunch of passionate users. I'm like, we're take my money now. Like, that's the one, right? 
And you do that and you go down that path and you'll find the next bigger user, the next level, the next level. Those are the founders I've found that create the multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. Solve a small problem that really keeps them overnight. And then when they're solving it, the next level, then the next level, then the next level. That's all it is. Agreed. Man, Kamal, this has been awesome. I just, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight, your expertise, and your willingness to be open and vulnerable and share what life has been like for you, like the good, bad, and the ugly. Mm. And so this has been just uh, such a blast for me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt. It has as well. Well, thank you. I'd love to make sure that people can find you. Where's the best place they can learn more about you? Well, if you want to look at my investments or my fund, just go to evolve.vc, venture, like, like venture capital. Actually, my brother came up with that name because we are both big it. believers in personal, personal evolution, right? Evolve.vc, they'll take you to, you can see my investments in my fund if you're interested. And as far as my books, Amazon, just, you know, love yourself like your life depends on it or anywhere, bookstores around the world, but Amazon is the biggest bookstore in the world. And my email address is still in the book and I still get emails or just, you know, reach out to me on a lot of people reach out to me on social media now too. But that book is really, really special to me. So I hope people listening, like if there's not very things that differently state, but I, I will say this book, if you read it, it will make you a better version of you. And if it doesn't reach out to me, I'll refund your money. But the Harper Collins, <laughs> like I've never had anyone take me up on that. You know, that's how confident I am. I can second it. This book will make you a better version of you because you've got to do some soul searching. And it's, you know, you look on the inside in this book. So there's no way if you read it, you're not going to become a better person. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I love all that you're doing. I love to wrap up every episode I do asking our audience a question. And the question I love asking every week is some variation of this question, but it's almost to the same tune because this to me is the most important thing that I can help people with. And it's this, what's the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom, to move towards living a life by your design that you truly desire? So again, a life by design, not a life by default. And what are some of the action steps you can take based on what Kamal has shared today to help you achieve that. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, Would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments.
The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.